You are listening to the Sola Podcast, presented by One Church Senior Pastor Demetrius McClendon and Young Adult Pastor Troy Stewart. Welcome, everybody, to our young adult ministry called Sola here at One Church. I want to thank you for joining us, uh, be it whether you're here in person or whether you're joining us over the podcast. I pray that God touches you tonight, that you, you hear a message from heaven that is relevant to your life. I pray that as we go through this study of salvation that we're three weeks in on now, that you'll be inspired to know that your salvation is secured, to, to be inspired to know how to lead others into salvation, and just to, to be inspired to study the scriptures for yourself, to really dig in into this thing and to grow your own faith and your journey. Once again, I want to encourage you, if, if you don't have a church home, we would love to have you here us pastors at one church in Midlothian, Texas, or if you're listening over the podcast and you're not anywhere near Midlothian, then please plug into a church near you, find a church home, dig in, and ask the pastors questions. I'm sure they would love to help you through your journey of the scriptures and your salvation. Having said that, I want to go ahead and jump back to our study. Uh, The first week, we looked at salvation uh, under the scope of justification. Last week, we looked at salvation in the scope of sanctification, and this week, we're going to look at salvation in the scope of glorification. Once again, salvation is a word that is from uh, the Greek word soteriology. It's comprised of two words. That's the word soter, which is meaning savior or deliverer, and logos, which is word, reason, or explanation. So put together, it is the explanation of the savior, um, or the, the, the study of the biblical doctrine of salvation is what soteriology is. Uh, justification, we saw that it was a legal binding contract between man and God, where God declares us, the sinner, holy and righteous. And he says that is for eternity, that we are forgiven of our sins, and that he looks at us and sees us as blameless, as good, as righteousness, as his righteousness, that we looked at the fact that it says that since we are His righteousness in the Scriptures, uh, Second, uh, Second Chronicles uh, 5, 20, 21, uh, I'm not sure exactly where the verse is there, at the very end of the, the, the fifth chapter, it says that He became our sin and we become His righteousness. And we looked at since it says that we become His righteousness, that means that it is up to Him to remain righteous and up to Him to remain, for us to remain saved. Because if it was for us to become righteous, and then we sin, we're no longer righteous, we lose it. So we know that salvation, therefore, is eternal. That justification is once and for all. We've already looked at that uh, salvation last week through the scope of sanctification. That God, because of our justification, allows us in our flesh here on this earth to journey with Him in our salvation. And that the scriptures that talk about the walk of your salvation now with fear and trembling is more about respecting it and having an adoration for the gift that God has given us. Like if you're going to carry like fine china, things like that. That God also wants our sanctification to be a process of us to know that we can team with him. That he desires us to work. He wants us to know that we can do things. And he desires us to do those things. Um, This week we're going to look at the glorification. And remember I said that before that justification and glorification have to do with us, and sanctification was more so about for other people. Just so that you can remember that, that although sanctification is the one that we're most involved with, it really has the least to do with us because it's to encourage others, it's to show God or show other God's grace and his goodness and his kindness and to lead them into repentance. We're going to see a little continuation of that in glorification, uh, but we're going to look at glorification more in depth this week. Uh, the word for glorification in the Greek comes from the, the words doxazo, which means to glorify, and the word doxa, which means glory. Uh, it also has roots in Hebrew language from the word kabod, which means weight or heaviness. Um, so when we speak of the glory of God falling upon his people in the Old Testament, we're talking about the word kabod. Okay? So think about uh, that th- this can be like, an emotional heaviness, where if you've ever watched like a movie or something, you're like, that's heavy. Like the idea of it is just, man, emotionally it's just so weighty. It's so heavy that it makes me 
want to lie down. It's just this very heavy thing there. That can be what God does uh, when we talk about his heaviness and his weightiness. Or even intellectually, when uh, I remember, uh, I love to study philosophy and just like going through different philosophical ideas and then coming to realization of something and just sit there and go, you know, I just, I, anytime I think about this, I think of like the old hippies, you know, heavy, man. Um, my friend Sean uh, recently, uh, I'll say coined, but I mean, for lack of better words, he coined the, the term, instead of it being a heavy revelation, he likes to call it a heavy revy now. And I love it, receiving heavy revies from God. Um, but just things that make you stop and go, whoa, that's heavy. That can be a, a, a manifestation of God's glory in our lives. Where we see a new aspect of him, and oh man, I've never thought that before. That's that's heavy. That's his weight. That's his glory. It could even be, um, you know, emotional, intellectual. It could also be spiritual, where in worship or in in the study of the scriptures, anything that goes on, all of a sudden, it's like your soul feels something. You're like, oh, I've never seen that before. There's like a revelation happening, and there's there's just some heaviness deep within you to where you can't explain it other than something in me just feels something deep. It's the glory of God being revealed to you on, an, on a solical level, on, a, on a, a spiritual level there. But it's also important to know that this glory can also be extended to the physical. Okay, It doesn't just remain in the intellectual and the emotional or the spiritual. And this is what we would call the being slain in the spirit. All right, Which if you've never seen it, I'm sure you have. I'm sure you probably laugh at it because I used to laugh at it too where people sometimes they get smacked in the forehead and they fall to the ground or sometimes they're just standing there and nothing happens and they just fall. And you just, you just, you just oh, I can't stand anymore. Maybe you've experienced it in a time of deep worship where you just felt like you had to sit down because you could just no longer stand. Uh, maybe you've had a, a prayer time where you just really felt the presence of God and you just laid down because of the holiness of the moment. These are, these are the, the, the glory of God, these moments, the weight of God, His presence literally coming and falling on man, okay? And it's important to know that this is real. People aren't just having an emotional high and falling down, okay? Now, sometimes that can be the case, but this whole falling under the glory of God thing, it's real and it's, it's, it's scriptural. Let's look at um, a couple of scriptures here where it talks about the glory of God falling on people. Um, Psalm 22, verse 3 says, Yet you are holy, you who are enthroned on the praises of your people, praises of Israel. The idea that's painted here by the psalmist is that as they're worshiping God and praising God and, and dedicating this time to him and dancing and having this celebration, it's like God literally comes and sits right among their praise. Like a throne is right there on them, and they can feel it. Okay, uh, in Second Chronicles chapter seven, this is where Solomon dedicates the temple, where fire from heaven falls and consumes the 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 the, the sacrifices on the on the altars. He then dedicates the temple to the name of God, and then what we call the Shekinah glory, the the fog of God, the the holy smoke, comes down into the temple, and it says the priests are walking in to do their, their priestly duties, and it's so thick they can't even stand anymore. They can't walk, they can't see anything, and then this, this fog rolls down the hill into all of Israel, and all of Israel lays on their face. So we see these things. So I'm just speaking this because we're going to look at certain things uh, as, we, as we go into our, our study of the Scriptures uh, in different series along this year about stuff like glory clouds, about stuff like the Shekinah glory, um, being slain in the Spirit, and, and different happenings that may look weird, but it's important to know that this stuff does have a root scripturally. Now, when we talk about the glory of God, that doesn't always mean that some smoke is going to come and, and we're going to fall. Uh, a different way to look at glory as well is to shine, okay? To be lifted up and to shine. Think about whenever you would light a lamp, you'd stick it as high as you could on a lampstand. Okay, you wouldn't hide anywhere. You'd stick it up so all the light could go, uh, like in Narnia, the lamppost that's up there. It shines the light through the forest, and that's how they know they can get home. This is the idea of glory. It's something lifted up, something shining. Okay, And then you see in the Scriptures, um, places like with Moses, 
where his face is shining with the glory of God in Exodus chapter 34, where he comes down from the mountain and says he sees the glory of God, and then he comes down and people say, Moses, veil your face. It shines with God's glory. A literal light shining off of him, beaming coming off of this. Insane. John chapter 12, verse 32, uh, speaks of the glory of God shining. He says that uh, you are like a lamppost on a hill. You know, you wouldn't hide it. and uh, Therefore, let your light shine before all men so they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Okay, this is what he's saying, that you're going to do good works and it's going to shine and people are going to look at you and go, whoa, God is good. Okay, now why is this? If I'm shining, why would other people look at me and see something else? Well, the answer to that is, is pretty simple because we need to remember that we're, it's like the sun and the moon. All right, we don't look at the moon and go, whoa. The moon, it just shines its own brilliance. You know, once we've realized through science that the moon just reflects the sun's light, we realize it just reflects the sun's light and it does a cool job at it. That's what we do. God's glory shines off of us. So the reason why when people see our good works, they glorify God, is because our good works are testifying of God and we're looking towards Him saying, we're doing this all for you. So we're focused on God. God is looking at us. He's shining off of us and being reflected to all the earth. And everybody goes, whoa, God is good. This is amazing. So we need to remember that we're, we're like the moon. Uh, or Revelation chapter 21, verse 23, where it's really cool. This is the, 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 the marriage of the bride, the church, and the groom, Jesus and it says that there's no more need for the sun or the stars or the moon to, to, to shine in their radiance, for the glory of God is their light. Let's talk about new heaven, new earth. That God's glory is revealed to humanity perfectly, that we no longer need light bulbs, we no longer need the sun, or anything else to sustain us, that the light that comes is the pure light from God. This is pretty interesting. Uh, I think about as well with Paul on the road to Damascus where it says that he saw a blinding light. It happens, the glory of God in that moment. Now, we're looking at this thinking, okay, you're talking about the glory of God. Well, I thought we were going to talk about our glorification. Well, we are. But the only way to understand our glorification is to first understand God's glory. Remember, we're the moon. So if we don't understand God's glory, how can I ever understand what's to happen to me? So if God shines in his brilliance, then that means at some point I too shall shine. Whether it's just reflecting his goodness or not, there's going to be something shining off of me. That when God lifts up his own name, there's going to be a certain amount of lifting me up as well. And the scriptures say that God lifts those up who humble themselves. That it's not just that fake humility of, well, I'm just so low, so weak, and you got that eye towards heaven. Did you hear me? said, I'm so low and so weak. You know, I'm not good enough to do anything. You know, and you got that false motive going on. That's not real humility. The real humility says, I'm just going to lay down. I'm going to serve other people, and I'm going to be just invested in and and just hanging out, doing my thing here without without regard of, of being known. I don't need any accolades. I don't need anything to happen towards me. And God looks down and goes, that's a cool person. We're going to give him some cool awards in heaven. And those awards are things like, you know, jewels that we get to lay before Jesus' feet when we get up there. Uh, It's like Jesus literally putting on other people to come to you and say, I really love how you serve. It inspires me. Um, It's joy. It's it's all kinds of things that we may not actually get like a, a, a gift or a plaque that's like most humble person at one church. Um, because then we would probably no longer be the most humble pe- person because we have a plaque for it. Um, but anyways, that's just the idea of the hu- humility, that God will raise up those who lower themselves. Uh, the same idea that Jesus says, if you shall come after me, you must lose your life to find it. It seems so contradictory on a lot of, a lot of levels. Because Jesus is saying, if you're only interested in, in saving yourself, then you missed it. But if you're interested in losing yourself for the sake of me, man, you get it. If you're only interested in lowering yourself down and serving people so you can be honored, you've missed it. You're not honoring people. You're not serving them. You're serving yourself. 
So this is part of the glory, that you're lifted up, that you shine. It also means, though, that there is a weightiness to your presence. Okay, and I think about, uh, like at, at, at Christ for the Nations Institute, where uh, a few of us here in this room went, where I went and graduated from. It's a Bible school here in, in Dallas, Texas. There's a lady by the name of Sharon Hobbs. And this lady, you can walk past her. And it's like, ooh, what, what was that? Like, who just walked past me? And you're like, oh, it was Hobbs. Of course it was. You can feel something on this lady. When she hugs you or just shakes your hand, you're like, ooh, man, like that's, you got to just get away from me. That's too much right now. You know, or uh, Dr. Belcher, who's preceded us into heaven now, he would talk. The authority that he spoke in, you're just like, I don't even know what you just said because he's from New Zealand and sometimes his accent was too thick. But the amount of authority that was there, the glory that came through his voice because God glorified him was just amazing. Powerful things going on. And I'm sure there's times in, in your lives where you've met people where you just, for some reason, you have that instinct to kind of lower down and, man, you've got authority. You've got some power to you. Whether it's a godly power or a demonic power, whatever it is, it's just there's something that I recognize on you. There's, there's some weight. It's glory. And it's cool because the more that we become like Jesus, the more that this thing rubs off on us. You see, like with Peter, as he's walking back, there's a story in the, the book of Acts. I didn't look it up. I didn't expect to talk about this, so this is homework. Uh, go look this up. Just Google it. Uh, Peter, Shadow Hill people. Um, Heal, not kill. Uh, I don't know if my accent came across wrong there. But Peter's walking home. All right, I get the idea that he's tired. It's it's the end of the day. The shadows are casting long because the sun's setting. And the people are bringing their sick out and and to be touched by the shadow of Peter. And they're healed. Whoa. Whoa. Shadow, man. Like, that's insane. Now, this doesn't mean we need to go being like shadow puppets and healing people that way. But this is just saying that there's a certain degree to come with walking with Jesus so closely, lowering yourself down, humility, you know, walking in humility with God in a manner that God then lifts you up to a point where he says, your shadow shall bring people to my presence. There's a weight there. There's a glory there. And it's a part of our salvation. So we have both of these ideas used as the expression of God. The weighty presence that is promised in the Scripture, and the shining, the lifting up. And it's important to know that it's God who has all the glory. Okay, It's God who can glorify only. So it, God has all of it, and only God can give it. Okay, So think about when we say, like, God, we glorify your name. right? We're not reaching into our pockets of a reserve that God doesn't already have and saying, here's some extra glory that you don't already have. What God is saying is, because you are my people, because you are justified and being sanctified, I'm giving to you an extension of my glory. But guess what? Give it back to me. That we get to shine back to him and say, man, you're just, you're just good. I want to give you back what you gave me. And this process just continues on more and more. So we glorify God because he has given us the ability to glorify him. It's not of ourselves. Only God can glorify. So remember, it's just the easiest way to think about that is the sun and the moon. The moon, if it had, if there was no sun, we wouldn't even know there was a moon. We'd just be like, dude, these waves are going weird. You know, all of a sudden they're they're low and then they're high. And then they're low. I don't know why. The earth just must be moody, but we know that there's a moon and it, and it controls our tides. We know that um, you know it's made out of cheese, craft macaroni cheese to be precise. Um, which is a good thing that I'm too big to be an astronaut because I would just, I'd eat the moon. Um, it's a fact, guys. I read it on the internet. Um, and they can't lie on the internet. Abraham Lincoln said that. Uh, so the only glory that we can have is because he gives it to us as an extension or a reflection of himself. And remember that our entire purpose of living is to glorify God. Is to love God and reciprocate the love that he gives to us. So the scriptures say, why do we love God? Because he first loved us. Why do we glorify God? Because he first gave us the ability to glorify him. Because he lifts us up to this place to say, now I've glorified you, you glorify me. I love what Jesus says. Lord, 
glorify your son. In John 16, he says, I've glorified it. I'll glorify him again. I'm like, whoa. Because Jesus is constantly going, it's all about the Father. It's all about the Father. It's all about the Father. And God's like, the Father's going, man, it's all about my son. Look at him. Look at him. It's almost like a competition between the two. Where they're like, I'll out-glorify you. And they just do this. And this is the idea that I have of God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're just trying to out-glorify each other, out-love each other, out-serve each other. It's an idea that I've shared with you guys before about when I worked for the church camp in Cedar Hill uh, called Mount Lebanon uh, Baptist Encampment. And us guys, we wanted to serve each other. And we wanted to be humble. We had all this idea about humility. Let's serve and let's teach, you know, let's, let's, let's teach our women what it is to be served by men and honor them. Well, in good fashion of guys that are 18 to 22 years old, it became a competition. Which then we started saying, I'm going to have the biggest piece of humble pie. And then at the end of the day, we'd be like, I had the whole pie. That's how humble I am. And we'd brag about it. And, and then we lost the point of humility all over again. And then, like, girls would be like, I really just want to take my trash right now. Like, I'm not even done with a drink. We're like, I'm serving you. Let me serve you. I'm being humble. And it was like, no, you're, you're being a jerk. Like, <laughs> and so this isn't what we're, what we're trying to get to here. Not that we want the biggest piece of humble pie, but we kind of want the biggest piece of humble pie. In all honesty, it should be our, our desire to be like Christ, who is humble. I find it interesting that the Bible says that Moses is the most humble man who's ever walked the earth. And guess who wrote that? Most likely Moses. Okay, I guess you win that one. Who are we to argue with you? You know, or maybe Joshua, his his predecessor, but or his his follower. I don't know if that's the right word. Successor, yeah. He followed Moses. If you're listening to this and you think I'm dumb, I am. Get over it. Um, but he followed him, so maybe he wrote that. But, yeah, it's just that idea that maybe Moses said it about himself. Um, there's a friend of mine that he'll sing the, you know, the, if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. He goes, if you're humble and you know it, then you're not. And it gets me every time. Um, you'll get it later. So we, he gives us glory as an extension of himself or a reflection of himself. Okay? And... Once again, we're not given this extension or this, this reflection for us to look in the mirror and go, wow, I shine with God's glory. I am just magnificent. Look at me. I used to be ugly and sinful, but now I'm sanctified. I'm justified and being glorified. Look at me. No, it's nonsense. We're glorified so other people can look and go, whoa, God is good. And it's through your sanctification process, People should be able to look at you and go, something's different. You used to be worse than a sailor with your mouth, and, and now you're just really sweet-spoken. And, and you, you lift me up and you encourage me all the time. You know, I used to drink more than a fish, and now you don't even touch the stuff. You used to be a pervert, man. I couldn't trust you around anybody. And now you honor women. There should be some kind of difference. You used to be angry all the time. You used to be... I mean, just whatever it is that you, were, that you were wrapped up in, there should be a difference. There should be a certain amount of sanctification and glorification on you that when people look at you, they say, God is good. God has truly done something in this person's life. That's the point to this. Matthew 5, 14 through 16 gives this idea when he says, once again, let your light shine before men that they may recognize that it is God. I misquoted that earlier, so there's the right quote. Matthew 5, 14 through 16. I'm not a heretic anymore. So the process of glorification is something that begins now in this life, but it will be it will be completed. Sorry, it will not be completed until we are in heaven. That's important to know. It begins now. And that can be confusing because you you might ask, but I thought we're being sanctified. Yes. So we're being glorified too. Yes. And we're already justified. Yes. So our sanctification, our glorification, they're two different things, okay? They're probably the same process of being saved, but our sanctification is us living out our salvation, and our glorification is God looking down and saying, because you're living it out, I'm going to make you more like me. I'm going to change you. It's the work that God does in us. So glorification is the completion of salvation process and secures our eternity 
with Jesus. But that's not until we die. So we know that we're still going to work on this. Justification, it's a one-time deal that established the forgiveness of our sins and assured our salvation before God. Sanctification is the lifelong process of living out the salvation we've been given. Glorification is becoming like Jesus. Now, some of you might be asking, well, does that mean that we no longer sin? Well, I think that's kind of the point to salvation. 1 John chapter 2 says that if you are in Christ and you continue to sin, you are a liar. For no man can be in Christ, can be in Christ and sin. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean that, you, that you're not stumbling. That means that you're living a lifestyle of sin, that you continue to choose to disobey God over and over and over and over again. So glorification means to become like Jesus. And remember, Jesus was 100% man, 100% God. He had every opportunity to sin and still chose not to. He was showing us the way that's possible. So our sanctification and our glorification is us living this thing out, that I can live in my salvation and my freedom, sanctification, and now I can have the power. Because remember, the Holy Spirit has infilled us at the point of justification. So now I have the power of the Holy Spirit to live like Jesus. To live perfectly like Jesus. Now, will that ever happen this side of earth? I have no idea. I know I haven't reached that yet. I know Paul, we're going to look here in just a second, says that he hasn't reached that yet. And if the Apostle Paul hadn't got it, I don't know if any of us are going to get it. But man, we're going to try. And just because it may not happen doesn't mean that we don't give it everything that we got. We get as close as we can. Every single time. When we fall, we learn why we fell. We don't fall that way again. Because we're going to get it next time. We see that that our glorification means that at some point, we're going to live with no more sin. And we know that's, that's heaven. But we know that Jesus also says that the kingdom of God is here. It's now. There's a certain amount of invitation that Jesus gives to us to live this glorification now. When he forgave people and healed them, he would say, go and sin no more. It's not a suggestion. This is a commandment. That Jesus was implying to them that you really could, by his power, by the Holy Spirit, go and sin no more. People, this is not just a lofty idea. This isn't me just up here spitting something that's new. This is something that Jesus really wants us to get and understand. That we don't have to live in sin anymore. And not only do we not have to live in sin anymore, that we can become like Him. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 says, Let us, this is God speaking, let us make man in our image. This is God saying, You can be restored to that perfect image of me, that you can be restored to who you're supposed to be, and it's like me. Now, we need to be careful of something. This is not saying that we become gods. This is not saying that we become omniscient and omnipotent and and, and omnipresent like God. This is just simply saying that we are made back to being like Him. Whatever that means, whatever that looks like, that's what we're being glorified for. I want to make sure that that is known. Because some people would tell you that, that, well, we're going to become like God again. That means that we become little ones. That's heresy. That is absolutely heresy. Do not follow anybody that says that. I do not become a God. But I get to become one with God. We're going to look at this a little more in depth. Glorification is the ultimate perfection of the believer. Justification is completely immediately completed immediately by God on our behalf. Sanctification is lived out daily on this earth on our behalf, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And glorification, it's eternal. It's something we hope for in the life to come. Look at this, Romans 5.2 says, Through whom we have gained access by faith into the grace in which we have, in which we now stand, we and we rejoice in the hope of for the glory of God, the hope of the glory of God for something to come. Colossians 1.27, to them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, something to come. It's something to be revealed. Romans 8, verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are nothing worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. 1 Peter 5 Verse 1, to the elders among you, I appeal as a, 
fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. It is something to be obtained. 2 Thessalonians 2.14 He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 2.10 Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul says this in Philippians 3.12 through 14. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Once again, this is Paul saying, I haven't got it yet, and I'm not saying that I have it yet, because he's just saying, if you want to know what Christ looks like, look at me. If you want to be an imitator of Christ, imitate me. If you don't have any other idea, then look at me. Then he's saying, I'm not acting like I'm perfect. I'm not saying that I'm Jesus. But what I'm saying is my eyes are set on him, and I'm running hard after him. And I'm leaving my life of sin. I'm not looking back. I'm going forward. I'm going to be sanctified day after day after day. And I'm moving from glory to glory to glory. And one day I'll have it. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, I'm being poured out. We looked at that last week. I've kept the faith. I've finished the race. These are the ideas that he's talking about. Man, I'm, I'm in this thing. I've kept it. Now I'm being poured out. Now it's time for me to go. And I know that he will give me the crown of glory, of righteousness. So again, if if Paul says that he wasn't perfect, I would say he's probably the best example of a Christian that we have since Jesus, which Jesus wasn't a Christian because he can't be a follower of himself. So Paul's Paul's about as close as we can get to it. And he himself says, I don't think I even have it yet. Man, that's crazy. Because this dude was beaten to death. Okay, hear me. Beaten to death. And then he wakes up and tells his buddies, let's go inside, grab our stuff, and go to another city. Sometimes he would wake back up. He'd literally just come back to life and go back and start preaching in the same city to the people that just killed him, and they'd all freak out and have a salvation experience because we just killed you. We're talking about Jews. Jews know how to kill people. Okay, they stone you, and then you're dead. All right? And that's usually, that's how death works. You, you die, and then you stay dead forever until Jesus comes back. Not Paul. Paul was like, oh, thanks for the nap, guys. Uh, all those broken bones and everything. Yeah, no, they're good, man. Jesus has me. And I'm going I'm to move on now. I see that y'all really don't want me here. I'm going to go to the next town. They'd follow him. I mean, you, you can understand why they're so angry. That's what we're talking about this guy. And this guy who's wrapped up in prison, ja- prison jails, well, prison chains, you know, and in jail cells, and he's singing worship songs, and he's leading the prisoners to Jesus, and even the guards. I'm sorry, but if I'm locked up for something that is nonsense, like preaching the gospel, I'm probably not going to have the best attitude. You know, I'm just being honest with you guys. It's a part of my process that I work on. But he's leading people to Jesus, and then... In the middle of the night, the wall comes crumbling down because he's praising God, and then he gets set free. You can't stop this guy. That's what he says. Whether I live, it's for your gain. Or if I die, it's for Christ. Because they're like, well, we'll kill you, Paul. Cool, I'll go be with Jesus. Well, then we'll, we'll put you in prison. Sweet, I'll write to all the churches and encourage everybody. Well, hold on now. Which one do you like more? I love them both. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Whatever you have for me. This guy is so wild. And if he says he doesn't have it, I'm not going to say that I have it. And I know me. <laughs> and that would be me missing it immediately if I said that I already had it. But it gives me some hope, though, that if Paul could look like that, then maybe I could look like that. If Paul could get that close, then I could get that close. We need to remember that the Scriptures are not just stories of things that look good. The Scriptures are real historical people that are showing us what we can be like. 
And if you say, well, the apostles, they only do that because they walked with Jesus right behind them, not Paul. Paul seemingly never met the guy in the flesh, except the experience he had on the Damascus Road. So what do you have for him? This is it's talking about our glorification that we can have here, our relationship with God that can be realized. That I want us to, to get out of this defeated mindset of, well, I'm a sinner and I'll always be a sinner. No, I'm justified by grace through faith. This is God justifying me. I'm now forgiven, so I'm being sanctified day after day by living that out, saying I will not sin, I will not go back to this lifestyle, and now I'm receiving the glorification from heaven, from God, for me to be made like Jesus. I will not accept that people say that I'm just a sinner. I will not accept that people say that I'm Troy an alcoholic. Well, I'm Troy an addict, because I used to be one. No, I'm Troy the justified, being sanctified with the hope of glorification. Who are you? Are you who you used to be? If you are, then you haven't even begun this process. Because if you've been justified, you're no longer guilty. If you're being sanctified, that means you're no longer choosing this lifestyle of sin. And if you're being made glorified, then God is looking at you saying, there's something in you that I see that looks like me. And I want other people to see that. And God looks nothing like a no-good sinner. God looks nothing like an addict. God looks nothing like a broken person. And I'm not saying that he doesn't, he's not there for them. But our God is so good. You come to him broken, you can't stay that way. Trust me. I came to him messed up out of my mind. And I may still be a little bit out of my mind, but I'm not so messed up anymore. You can't leave the presence of God the same way. Man, we look at the Scriptures with Jacob, who somehow wrestles with God. And then God breaks his hip. And he says, now you're Israel. Who he, Jesus meets Simon. And he says, I don't like that name. You're Peter. He just renames him right there. And the beautiful thing is that the Scriptures say that we have names on stones of white, new names. And only He knows that we'll receive in our full fullness of our glorification. That if you've ever, I know for myself, when God speaks to me, if, you, not, if you're not familiar with the story of Gideon, go, go read it. It is phenomenal. But God comes down to this guy, Gideon. His name means feller of trees, but it also means a mighty warrior. And the idea is that the Lord comes down to Gideon and doesn't say feller of trees. He says mighty warrior. And Gideon's like, he's three doors down. You missed it. And God says, I know who I'm talking to, mighty warrior. And he begins to speak it over him. And Gideon's like, whoa. And then he takes 300 men and, and conquers entire armies. And he goes, oh, I mean, this dude is, is, is way more you know, bad than Leonidas. And these Spartans, and they just crush lamps. But, you know, jars have lamps in them and people kill themselves. And they go crazy. This is the story that has there. But I had this idea that when God speaks to me, he doesn't whisper Troy. He whispers my name that's written on stones of white. He whispers something in my ear that I don't know yet. But I know he's calling me something greater because a name is an identity. And I just, I wonder what Jesus is whispering when he speaks to you. You're no longer broken. It's a completed one. Forgiven. Justified. Whatever it is. Mountain mover. Whatever it is that he calls you, it's a new thing. It's a way to be new. This is what we're talking about. No longer just trying to prove that we're not the same. It's because we're completely new. So, what's our purpose of salvation? Is it, is it merely for us to go to heaven? Because if, if, if so, then I, I encourage all of you to come down right now. Let me shoot you in the head. You can go be with Jesus. And in fact, every time somebody comes to Jesus, we just kill them on spot. Because why, why should you tarry here? Why should you wait? Go be with Jesus if that's what salvation is for. 
Leave. Get out of this life. It, it's, it's horrible. There's so much pain. There's so much sin. There's so much evil. Don't be with Jesus if that's what salvation's for. But is, is salvation then just made for us to, to be back in perfect unity with God? Is that what our salvation is for? Well, a piece of it, but it can't be the only thing. Because if so, then sharing our faith, well, that's, that's pointless. It doesn't help me get back to God. In fact, it just becomes braggadocious to say, well, I'm saved, and I'm going to be with Jesus. Well, can I be? No, but I am. So our salvation, it's not just to get to heaven. It's not just for us to be back to, with perfect unity. Maybe it's made for us to have something so much bigger. Maybe it's for this purpose, that we're to be full of the Holy Spirit, empowered to live out the salvation that God has given us and become more like Jesus so people can be shown the goodness of God and His saving grace. So when He whispers your new name, even if you don't understand it, and He calls you to be something new, and you begin to live out your sanctification, and He's glorifying you, making you more like Him, that when people look at you and they say, wow, I remember just last week you were doing this, and I can see a change in you. Where people come up to you and they say, whoa, whatever's going on on that, that's amazing. I love running into people from high school because it's, it was high school to me. I was, I was high all the time. I was just, I mean, an idiot. Partying like crazy, angry, just drugged out. And people look at me now and they're like, what happened? I'm like, what do you mean? They're like, you just seem like you have a joy. I'm like, yeah, man. Like, Jesus saved me. I'm like, oh. No, but really. Like, and then they get to spend time around me, and they're like, they're, whoa, you really are different. I remember uh, just a couple years ago, I was working for Sears, and uh, there's, there's a few things that, that went wrong and ended up losing my job. And I was partly to blame over it, but there was a lot of shady stuff that happened with them as well. And usually I would just lose my mind. And I'm talking, this is just two or three years ago, uh, I've been saved for like five, six years at this point. You know, I should be over my anger problem, but apparently I'm not. And they do this. And I stood up. And mind you, through this whole process, uh, I'd been just like clinging, clinging on to Jesus, came out of a relationship that just shook me to the core. And I mean, I had this identity crisis that I just found myself in Jesus and I became stronger with him than I'd ever been. And so I'm at this job where I'm just praying all the time. And I'd never done that before. And I'm just worshiping all the time. And I'm just talking to people about Jesus so easily. It always been something really rough for me. So he's the realest he'd ever been in my life. They fire me, and I get up and I shake their hands. And I said, thank you for this opportunity. God bless you guys. I just want to let you know that I just, I bless you all with all of heaven's blessings. And I just pray that you all find someone that has, meets this qualification perfectly. And you all have a good day. And I grabbed my stuff and I walked out. And they were so weirded out that they had security follow me out. And watched me leave in my car. And I remember getting in my car and then busting out laughing like a madman because I realized, whoa, I realized this salvation is so real in my life that I didn't just wig out. That part of my sanctification and God's glorification in my life meant that I now had self-control, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's incredible here that you can recognize it, that other people can recognize it, but ultimately so that people can be brought to salvation. That's why we get saved. So we can go to heaven, sure. But Jesus said, remember, heaven comes to earth. We can have it here right now. So that way we can be made back, be reconciled with God, sure. But that can't be it. It's got to be beyond us. And it's for other people. Colossians, or not Colossians, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And yes, we're going to read the whole thing. You should be used to that by now. This is the English Standard Version, so you can know what to read along with. We're going to start at verse 1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts, to be known and, be, and read by all. And you, should, you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human heart. Such is the confidence 
that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything that's coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be the ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has become, has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Now let's stop right there for a second. Because this kind of goes back and forth where you're like, what are you saying, dude? Paul is simply saying this. Excuse me. That the law, the covenant that was made with Moses, it had glory. It had a weight to it. It had a presence of God that was to be understood. But what he's saying is that the spirit, the freedom that's had here, so much more glory. So much more God understood. And in fact, Moses was the only one to receive a glorification of sorts from the covenant of the law. And what Paul's saying here is, we all can receive a glorification. We all can have this freedom. There's so much more God in this covenant than before. Since we have a, such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are becoming transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Some other versions right there in chapter or verse 18 would say that we are being made into the likeness of Christ from moving from glory to glory. Now, this is an like what on earth does this mean? What this means is that I don't just stay right where I am. That God doesn't come down and says, Here's a little bit of my glory, and you just have to stay there till you get to heaven. God comes down and says, Here, here's a little here. Now here's a little bit more. And here's a little bit more. And here's a little bit more. It's like he's drawing us in. Have you ever seen E.T.? Right? And Elliot goes out and puts the M&Ms down, or the Skittles, whichever one it was. He puts the candy down to draw E.T. in. And E.T.'s moving from candy to candy. I have this idea with, with this with God is that God has laid this out before us. And as we enter into these moments of glory, we move from glory to glory to glory, to glory, because he's drawing us into himself. Because he says, at some point, you're going to be with me in the fullness of my glory. But you can only take it at these little spots, these little intervals. Because he said all the way back in the Old Testament that no man can see his full glory and live. So we get little by little. How good is God? That he saves us, he justifies us freely forever, He lets us walk in sanctification, and he begins to glorify us, knowing that we wouldn't be able to comprehend the fullness of the glory. So he releases it in glory to glory to glory. He is such a good father. Moving on, verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we've already read that. We are looking with unveiled face. Behold the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the other. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And this is cool, okay? Earlier in this very chapter it says that we're not like Moses. We don't have a veil over our face, okay? So this is saying two things. That Moses veiled his face because the Israelites could not look on the glory that was coming off of Moses, okay? That's big, that Moses had been in the presence of God, and they're saying, hide that thing, man. We don't want to look at it, okay? Now, whenever, I know several people 
in fact, that have, that have had some very intense Jesus moments where they've been in worship and prayer and something's gone on. They just had this breakthrough moment in their life, what the, the Hebrew would call a paretz, a, a breakthrough. And they come out and you're like, whoa, you got some shine to you. You got some, some, something different. Like you just come out looking like, like if you ever watch Dragon Ball Z and you, you see where Goku walks out of the hyperbolic time chamber and he's just in Super Saiyan mode and everybody's like, how are you doing that? How are you staying? I was like, this is just me now. This is just normal. We have these moments with God where we, we have these, these breakthrough moments and it's like we've been in his presence so saturated in the glory that we come out and people are like, whoa, you got something on you. This is what Moses is dealing with. But he's saying we're not veiling it. So number one, we're not veiling because we're not going to hide it. We want the entire earth to see this thing. Not only we're not going to hide the lamp of our salvation, we're not going to hide the light of our glorification. Because they need to know that there's a hope of glory and that's Christ in you. There has to be a hope of glory. If it's only for us to be saved and not go to hell and then for us to not live in sin anymore, then there's still a disconnect made between us and God. We can never be married to God because we're not like Him. We're still this lowly vessel. So God says, I make you more and more and more and more like me until we are like each other. We can be with each other for eternity. That's the fullness of the gospel. That's the fullness of our salvation. God says, you shall be like me. So we don't hide it. We don't veil it because people need to see this. And then the second thing that we look at here with the veil is something incredibly beautiful. It's a, it's a custom for a bride to wear a veil over her face. And the custom is because the groom is not supposed to see her until the moment of their kiss, until they seal the marriage kiss-wise in front of everyone. So this is what Paul is saying, that we move from glory to glory with Jesus, and we're brought to this thing in with unveiled face. That Jesus is removing the veil from us, saying, the consummation is not quite yet. We're close. That we're at the altar, at least. That the marriage is, is taking place. That it's time for us to receive a kiss and to seal our marriage the consummation is still yet to come. We're going to seal this marriage. That's what glorification is. You see, the kiss was a symbol that the consummation was to come. And we're receiving the kiss from God with unveiled face, moving from glory to glory to glory. Now, in, in the Jewish custom, which is still very much the custom today, the marriage was consummated by sexual intercourse. This is what finalized the marriage. Okay, now, we talked about uh, last week with how, or not last week, um, the first week of justification, how the best man stood at the door of the marriage chamber and would wait until the groom was like, yeah, it happened. And he would show him the towel, uh, the bloody towel that showed that the wife was no longer a virgin. It's an incredibly weird s situation, but it's how they did it. And then the best man would run back and say, it's done, let the party begin, pop the bottles open, let's get it going party to be had. Well, this is what this is looking at, that our consummation is, it's, was made by sexual intercourse to finalize the marriage. Now, listen to me carefully. I am not saying that we have sex with God. This may sound like a joke to you, but I am not saying that at all. There are people that would say that. And I, as I said earlier, I want to say again, that is called heresy. There's no truth in that statement. We are not having sex with God. We are not any type of thing like that, okay? But there is a truth to be had here from the sexual intimacy of man and woman that is shared between man and God. And that is that sexual intercourse creates intimacy that has never been had before true people. Because... True intercourse means that you have to strip yourself completely naked. Both parties, you hide nothing from each other. This is the first time that you've ever seen each other this way. It should be the first time that you've ever seen each other this way. 
to where you say, I've known your ideas, I've known your laugh, but now I know every part of you. Now I can see every inch of who you are. It's incredibly vulnerable. There's a piece of me that even to this day I'm like, I can't imagine being that open and vulnerable with another person. What if they don't accept? What if they laugh? What if they look and say, I don't want that anymore? But this is God who comes and and puts himself perfectly naked before us and says, know me, study me, have all of me. Anything you want, it's yours. And he asks us to do the same, to come before him naked, not physically. Do not go to church naked. You will be arrested and people will think you're the weirdest person on earth. But we come in emotionally raw, saying, I'm not going to hold anything back from you. Maybe somebody's done me wrong, but I'm not going to hold you to their standard. Spiritually, I'm coming before you as raw as possible. And intellectually, anything that I know, it's just it's to be held down to your standard. I'm coming before you perfectly vulnerable, perfectly open, naked, raw. This is the intimacy that it's had between man and God. In fact, there's a word in Greek. There's three words in Greek for knowledge. One is gnosis, one is ide, and one is nosko. Okay, gnosis is the, the knowledge that you would get from reading a book. So you would read it and go, oh, I have gnosis of this. I studied it. Ide is that aha. Whoa. Did you know that happens? When I flick this switch, the light comes on. Whoa. I have a revelation. Nosko is the knowledge of experience. This is an intimate knowledge, deep, intimate knowledge. It's the knowledge that's described when two people had sex. That in Genesis 4, there's a word in Hebrew called yada, yada, where in Seinfeld they say yada, yada, yada. It means you know, you know, you know. Um, but that's, that's where that saying comes from. Uh, it's, a, it's a real Hebrew word, yada. It means to intimately know, the same way that nosko means. Genesis uh, I believe it's chapter 4, verse 1 says, and the man knew his wife and she was with child. Now, I can, I can know everyone in this room. and It doesn't mean you're going to get pregnant because it's a different kind of knowledge that we're talking about here. And a different version saying the man lay with his wife, the man slept with his wife, and she was with child. So this is the, the knowledge that we're talking about. It's not seen anywhere else. It's the aspect of our relationship with God. It means that we lay ourselves, again, before him completely as if we were naked spiritually, emotionally, and mentally. And then he lays himself before us the same way. There's no secrets. There's nothing hidden. This is the consummation of our relationship with Jesus. That we now know him fully. The word in Greek for this type of love, we've been looking at the four words of love through this study, we saw agape, which is to do with justification. We saw the, the, the phileo, which has to do with the sanctification, the, the best friend, the soulmate. Now we're going to look at the word eros, which is the word for romantic or sexual love. This is where we get the idea of uh, the words erotic, uh, erotica, all those types of things evolve off of this word eros. Romantic, sexual love. Intimacy. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, For now we've seen a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall now fully, I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. This is that nosco. I shall intimately know him fully, as I have been intimately fully known my entire life. Psalm 16:11 says, "You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore." If we're not reading this under the scope of marriage, we're going to miss this. But it says, "You make known to me. You make no scope to me the path of life. You make it intimate. You let me know everything that is to be had with you. You make it known to me. In your presence there is a fullness of joy. I lack nothing. You give me everything." It says, at your right hand are the pleasures forevermore. And that word pleasure there is exactly what we think of. When we, we, when we experience something pleasurable, that there's, there's that ecstatic moment of this feels amazing. 
there's an idea that I've had for a while that I've shared with others, and um, it actually branched from one of my professors in college and uh, who began to show me this idea of the, the scriptures of a marriage and the idea of intimacy with God and how it's shown through us through physical sex. And again, once again, not that we have sex with God. It's just the way that we understand the intimacy that's shared between us and God. And he said this, that sex between man and woman is had for recreation. And in Genesis, it says that, to go and multiply, multiply, populate the earth. But it's also to have an extension of love. That he gave us this for our pleasure. And there's a moment during sex that you reach that is the ultimate pleasure. It's the, the, the climactic moment there. That we have this flood of endorphins in our brain that tells us it's the happiest we've ever been. Our, our adrenaline gland cranks up. We're the strongest, the happiest, the healthiest we've ever been. If for a brief second, that's our climax. Man and woman experience this. The healthiest a human will ever be is in that moment. Fleeting moment. My friends, our glorification is the consummation of our marriage. That when we get to heaven, we're fully glorified. We're fully known and we fully known. It creates this idea then that if sex is moving towards the point of climax, then our glorification, our entering into the next life, is entering to the next life of full pleasure of something that doesn't stop. It's not, near, not merely just this moment anymore, but it is eternity in the ecstatic pleasure of God. That we no longer work towards gaining that moment. There's nothing left to be experienced other than each other, other than the vulnerability. There's nothing hidden. There's nothing held back. And we're fully satisfied for all eternity. It's a beautiful explanation of heaven to me. That no matter what it is, if I'm on my face in worship and that's what I feel forever, then I'll do it. If I'm doing work, that's how I feel forever, then I'm doing it. I'm satisfied forever. The best it could ever be. That's what we're talking about when we we talk about our glorification. That's what we talk about when we talk about salvation. And it's not just about getting to a place. It's about entering into paradise, entering into an ecstatic experience for all eternity. The most intimate, amazing thing we'll ever experience. He goes on forever. In fact, it talks about how time is unknowable there. It's like we get lost in this moment of perfect love with God. I can't think of anything more beautiful than that. That's the story of your salvation. And if you're, if you're listening tonight and you're, you're realizing that you don't know what it is to know Jesus, that you don't know what it is to be justified, that you're still caught in a lifestyle of sin, and you want out of that, and you want to experience this love. You want to be able to change. You want to see God and experience God. And you want others to be seeing God through you and your change. You want to have this hope of glory. I want to invite you to, to do something very simple. In Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10, it says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the mouth you confess, which leads to righteousness, and with the heart you believe, leads to salvation. Verse 13 then says that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You don't have to clean up to come to Him. Just right where you are, if you're in your car, just simply say this out loud. Don't close your eyes. Just say this out loud. These words have no, no special meaning to them other than what your heart is speaking. So make this your own prayer. Say something like this. Heavenly Father, I know that I have sinned against you and I ask that you give me your forgiveness. I know that you have 
died and rose again to save me. And I accept your salvation and your forgiveness. I ask that you give me the strength to leave my life of sin and to begin to walk out my sanctification. Holy Spirit, fill me right now. Empower me to live this life. Jesus, thank you for saving me. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for making me like you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're listening and, and you might be thinking that you've maybe you've fallen away from your walk with the Lord, and you want to come back to Him, it, it's, it's just as simple, my friends. To say to Him right now, wherever you are, God, I'm sorry that I walked away. Bring me back. As simple as that. And for those of us who are continuing on in our walk of salvation, let us pray daily, God, make me more like you. Make me more like you. If you prayed that prayer for the first time or for the 50th time or however many times you've prayed it or haven't prayed it, I want to let you know that if you genuinely meant that, that right now in this very moment, you've been saved, you've been justified. That your eternity is set with Jesus forever. You're forgiven. I want to encourage you to find a church home that you can plug in with. You can be discipled and you can be taught what it is to live a Christian life. Again, I want to invite you to come here to one church in Midlothian, Texas. If, if you're close enough to come here. If not, then, then find a church near you and plug into them. And allow God to transform you and allow others to see that transformation. And please know that if you slip up and you fall, it doesn't mean it's not real. It means that you are living out your sanctification. That if Paul hadn't attained it yet, maybe you've got some time to work on it too. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we love you so much. God, we thank you for how you reveal through your scriptures, Lord, how much you love us, how much you desire to have a relationship with us. God, that you haven't left us. And when we sinned against you, you didn't look down and say, well, be damned then. Go to hell. You looked down and you, with love, you sent your own self, your son, to die for us, to give us a way to come back to you. That you, 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 you pursue us so recklessly, God, that when we notice it, we can't help but come to you. God, I thank you for that love. I thank you that you always bring me back. Lord, I pray that you strengthen your people. Lord, that this week that we're just reminded of how good you are, that, that we walk in power and authority, that we're being made like you. Lord, that we're not caught up into what we've done, but we look at who you are and what you've done and what we can do together. I empower your people right now in the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus, for them to walk in that authority. Lord, that others will see your goodness through their lives. The gospel will be victorious everywhere we go. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.